Hi friends, welcome back to the Bible Project Daily Podcast. You are very welcome on this journey through the entire Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And welcome to part 11 of season 3, where we're working together through the Gospel of Matthew. I'd like to remind anybody, or if you're perhaps new to this journey, that there is always a full transcript of everything I say available in the episode notes of the podcast. It doesn't matter where you're getting your podcast from, there should be an episode notes page with not only a transcript of what I've said, but also links to ways in which you can connect to other teaching resources that this ministry makes available. So anyway, that's it for now. We'll drop back into the text we're studying and I'll see you back at the end just to give you a bit more information. Bye-bye for now. So we come across this phrase, the kingdom of heaven, in the opening verses of this chapter. So what is the kingdom of heaven? Where does that concept come from? The exact phrase itself doesn't appear in any part of the Old Testament, but the idea of a kingdom definitely does. So let me just quickly pause and tell you what the Old Testament says about this idea. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, God promised David a son who would rule forever, it says. Now all the rabbis of Jesus' time understood that the son of David was the Messiah. Furthermore, Daniel, in chapter 2 of Daniel, he is seen to prophesy that the kingdom of heaven will be established, a kingdom that will come after he destroys all the kingdoms of this world. The rabbis of Jesus' time also understood that God is going to at some point destroy all these earthly kingdoms and set up a messianic kingdom and that's the backdrop for this phrase the kingdom of heaven. Now scholars tell us that at the time of Jesus many in Israel were expecting this messiah to come at any moment. And beyond that, there was an expectation throughout the ancient world that there was a some sort of Messiah was about to come. And here we see in Israel, John the Baptist appear and be the first person for over 400 years to stand up and say the kingdom of heaven is at hand, meaning God is about to establish a new kingdom. He doesn't actually say it's here now. He says it's at hand, which means it's near, but not quite here yet. Now, this is important, and it's important to understand this for several reasons. You see, theologians today differ over the nature of what this kingdom of God is. One camp says that the kingdom is purely of spiritual nature, and that when Jesus came and he rules in the hearts of individuals, that that means that the kingdom has arrived. Now, there's some truth to that thought, and we see aspects of that taught in the teachings of Jesus and in fact throughout the whole Bible. But then there's this other point of view. No, the kingdom didn't come when Jesus was here. It was only near when he was here. And it was only near because he was here. I personally believe the Bible makes it very clear that this is a kingdom that will arrive fully in the future. So what is it? Is this a kingdom that is spiritual and has arrived, that arrived the very moment Christ arrived? Or is the kingdom that's being talked about here something that is said to be coming later? And that later will be when Jesus comes back and establishes a literal kingdom on the earth. 
I think it's very evident from reading the scriptures that it is in fact the latter. Just listen to the Lord's Prayer. These are the words of Jesus himself, remember, while he walked the earth. Our Father who art in heaven, thy kingdom come. So Jesus himself is clearly saying, it's not here yet. We want it to come. He wants it to come. In fact, he's praying and teaching us to pray that it comes. Remember also that we read passages about the Last Supper where Jesus was seen to say, I will not eat the fruit of the vine until I eat it again with you in the kingdom. But the passage that really clinches it for me is actually found in Acts chapter 1. Remember, Jesus has died and he's been resurrected and he then makes appearances to his disciples and his followers before he ascends. And just before he ascends, he meets with his disciples and the disciples say to him, are you going to establish the kingdom now? Now, this is important. These guys have just spent three years with him. If anybody would have understood that the kingdom was already here or whether it was even here or not, it is this group. They understood it wasn't here yet because they were still expecting it. And I have to say that's what the majority of commentators believe about this perspective. Of course, at this point, these disciples were probably expecting some literal kingdom, something that was going to replace the political institutions of the day. And Jesus, as good as says, don't you worry about that. I have another job for you. After I've gone, your job, well, first of all, you're going to receive power on the Holy Spirit because he's going to come upon you. But then you are to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and beyond. Go do that, and the kingdom will come later, he says. So my conclusion is the kingdom in the New Testament is that which comes uh, when Jesus comes again and sets up a kingdom. Okay, let's try and tie this whole passage of these first 11, 12 verses together. What I'm saying is that the kingdom is coming and because of that you need to be prepared. And John the Baptist appears here as the preparer. And how did he prepare? How did he say and how did he prepare the people then for the coming of the Messiah? He called them to repent. Remember I told you yesterday, repent means to change your mind, switch from trusting in yourself or any of your own merits, and instead trust in God's mercy and the person of Christ who died for your sins. That's the way to prepare for the coming kingdom. And that was the first thing John the Baptist said. The first thing he said we needed to do, we needed to be prepared, which is why John preached repentance. And then the second thing he did was he practiced baptism. John himself did this. The people from all over the region, Jerusalem, Judea, and all around, they went to him and he baptized them in the Jordan as they confessed their sins. In other words, this passage is simply telling us that people came out to him and acknowledged, responded to his preaching and said, yes, John, you're right, I am a sinner. I need to be prepared for this coming kingdom. And John said, Okay, repent, and then he baptized them. Now the Greek word baptizo, as used here in the ancient world, was a word used of the dipping of cloth and the changing of the colour of a cloth, either by bleaching or dyeing it. And the way it's been used here, of course, is what is called in grammar a metaphorical meaning or a figurative meaning. So baptism, on a literal sense, simply means to immerse 
or dip. But in its metaphorical meaning being used here by Matthew, it's talking about cleansing and identification. So this baptism here was being used as a symbol, as a representation of the fact they have made a decision, repented and been cleansed of their sins by repenting and having faith in Jesus Christ. And that's why John baptism here and elsewhere in the New Testament is referred to sometimes as the baptism of repentance. Because you have repented, the external representation of what you have done internally could be demonstrated by this physical act of baptism. Later, when we get to the end of this book, right at the end in chapter 28, it will tell us that Jesus commissions us as believers to go into all the world. And he says, I want you to make disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son and the Holy Spirit. And that's what we today call believer's baptism. But here, friends, is my main point. This passage tells us the kingdom is coming and we need to be prepared. So how do you prepare? Number one, you repent. You change your mind about trusting yourself and switch it to trusting in Christ. Number two, you get baptised. That was the pattern of John's preaching and I believe still today all believers need to willingly go through believer's baptism. And then we should go tell others about what has happened to us, what God has done for you and offer that good news to others. Now, some people get the mistaken idea that it is the baptism itself that washes away the sin. But that is wrong. Baptism, as I've explained it here, is a symbol. It's a figurative representation of what God has done in your life. Believer's baptism is a picture of the fact that we too have died and been buried with Christ. And as we're raised up out of the water, it's a symbol of resurrection and the cleansing of our sin. We too, like Christ, are raised up. But in our case, we're raised up to a new life. The old is gone, the new begins, and it's a new life with him. A resurrected spiritual life. And that is what believer's baptism illustrates. So you're not going to find Jesus in the pool or in the baptismal font. He's not in the water. I once heard of a rather amusing story of a pastor baptising people in the river of the town that he lived. And a drunk came along the riverbank and stumbled into the water and then stood up right beside the pastor. The pastor, somewhat shocked, said, Are you here to be baptised today? And the drunk, who was probably also a bit shocked, said, What do I need to do? And the minister said, Well, first, I need to ask you if you find Jesus Christ. And the drunk said, Well, maybe. Did he fall in here as well? Now, that's just an amusing story, but my point I'm trying to make is a serious one. If you're trying to find Jesus by looking at the ceremony of baptism, it's not the place to look. Jesus is not in the water It's not been transformed and given any magical properties. He's not there. We all need to be baptised if we've trusted in Jesus Christ for no other reason than he commanded it. And when we do it, it's a testimony, a representation, a symbol of what he has previously done in our lives. And we're just marking that with a physical event that represents it. I often think that my favourite way to illustrate this when talking to people is to take 
the wedding ring off my hand and say to people, does this wedding ring make me married? Now, I'm sure it makes my wife happy as long as I can, when I continue to wear it, but I don't put this on to be married and take it off to no longer be married. It's not something I can click in and out of. It stands as a ring on my finger, an unbroken circle, which represents, of course, a covenant relationship, which a marriage is. It's a symbol that I am married. Does going in the water of baptism, is that itself what makes you a Christian? No more than going into McDonald's makes you a hamburger. Baptism is a symbol, a representation of the fact that you have reached a point in your life that you have trusted to Christ and you're signalling that to others. So, the king is coming. The kingdom is coming. And in order to prepare, we need to trust in Christ. And then, if you've done that already, you should be baptised as a testimony to what has actually happened in your life. But there's something else in this passage, a rather fascinating point as we get towards the end. It's a point at which John the Baptist proclaims the fact that the judgment is coming. He sees these Pharisees and Sadducees coming and he calls them snakes. And he asks, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Now the background to this is clearly John's popularity was spreading to such an extent that the religious leaders from Jerusalem had left the city and they'd come out to the wilderness to see what's going on. Who isn't this new preacher that's attracting such a crowd, they thought. And he sees them coming and he says to them, he actually points to them, it says in one of the other accounts, and he says, wrath is coming, who told you to flee? This is a powerful rebuke. And then he says, therefore, go bear fruit worthy of repentance. Now, they were just like the people. They had been taught And they were trusting in the fact that they were descendants of Abraham. And they were trusting in their religious position. What I want you to notice is, he told them also to change their mind from depending on those things, rather to depending on God's mercy. But also notice, he dovetails the end of that by saying, but first bear fruit that's worthy of repentance. You see, God wants us to change our mind from trusting ourselves and trusting in Jesus Christ himself. But then he wants us, he wants you, he wants me, he wanted them. He wants to see the fruit of what comes after that. He wants to see us repent and be baptised, but then what is called to bear fruit. Let me just read the last two verses of this Matthew 3, of the section we're looking at the moment, verses 11 and 12. John, in sort of summarising and concluding what he's saying and what he's got going on here on that day in this place, he says this, I baptise you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptise you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in hand and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquestionable fire. The close of this passage is saying, you need to do something about this, and you need to do something about this because judgment is coming. 
He says, if God just wanted what he calls children of Abraham, if God just wanted religious people, then in this case, the generation of people who just followed the traditions of their forefathers, he actually says he could have taken stones and done that. So he's saying, don't trust the fact that you're a child of someone religious or you're part of a religious community or a religious nation or that you or someone in your family held a religious position because you are in danger of just ending up being the son of a viper, a snake. Now that's a heavy statement, which is why he warns that the axe is laid to the fruit of the tree. It's a last minute thing. It's about to be swung and every tree that does not bear fruit is going to be cut down, he said, and thrown into the fire of judgment. So what do they need to do? What do we need to do? What do you need to do? Well, we need to be prepared. And we are prepared by repenting and being baptised. And that prepares us to meet the Messiah. Now, clearly there's a connection here with fire. And there's a little bit of debate about how to interpret the last phrase about being baptised with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Many experts believe this refers to Jesus baptising with the Holy Spirit in his first coming and he baptises with fire in his second coming. And that fits the context and it is the much supported wise interpretation that most Christians have taken over the centuries. But what's this stuff about a winnowing fork in his hand and how he will come through and cleanse the threshing floor? So you see, it's all packed in here. He's making three points all at once. Three metaphorical points, in fact. His winnowing fork in his hands. He's going to cleanse out the threshing floor and gather the wheat into the barn. And he will burn up the chaff within question and full fire. So there's three illustrations here, all packed into a couple of verses. And they're all in some way connected with fire. The first is a lumberjack cutting down the forest and throwing the unfruitful trees into the fire. The second is the fact that at some point Jesus is going to baptise with fire. And then the third is this idea of the winnowing of wheat. Now that is a rather foreign idea to most people today living in an industrial society. But the idea is an important one and it's this. At that time they gathered the wheat and they put it in a pile. And then they took a pitchfork and they scooped up that wheat and they tossed it in the air repeatedly. And this is called winnowing. Because by doing that, they would separate the wheat from what's called the chaff. They would often do it on a blustery day and the wind would blow as they did it. And as they would toss it in the air, it would blow the lighter chaff away. And the wheat would fall to the ground and that is how the wheat would be separated from the chaff. The chaff was inedible and its only purpose was as kindling for the fire. And Jesus here is using this as an illustration of the preparation of people for the judgment. God himself is going to separate the wheat from the chaff. Later in the Gospels it will say how he will separate the sheep from the goats as well. So there's a number of pictures here referring to this. And what it is referring to is the judgment. And this passage we've been looking at these last cusping of days by really warning us that judgment is coming. So we need to do something about this. So in conclusion, what's coming? The kingdom is coming and judgment is coming. So what do we need to do? 
Well, we need to be prepared for those eventualities. And the answer is to repent, to change our mind about what and who we're trusting in, to get baptised as a testimony to what God has done in our lives, and then go and bear fruit. So what should that fruit look like? What does it mean to bear fruit? Well, look in his account of this exactly the same situation. He gives us a little more than the main sermon, Matthew just does the main text, but Luke includes a few answers to some questions that the crowd asked after he said this message. I'll just read it for you. So this is the crowd speaking, and he says, What should we do then? The crowd asked. Anyone who has two shirts, share one with someone who has none. Anyone who has food should do the same. Even tax collectors came to be baptised. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you're required to, he told them. Then soldiers asked them, what should we do? And he replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely and be content with your pay, be content with what you have. These people, are having heard this teaching, are coming and saying, what should we do? We've done this, we've gone to John, we've done this. What should we expect to see as the fruit of what's happened in their lives? And he's defining the fruit and what it should produce. The fruit that is worthy of repentance means being generous. He even tells the tax collectors who came to be baptised and they ask what should we do. His reply is simply to be honest and to collect no more than is appointed to. So be loving, fair and honest with people. And likewise the soldiers asked and these are people who have positions of tremendous power and they're saying how should we live our lives now? And he doesn't say stop being soldiers. He just says do not intimidate anybody and don't overuse your power and never falsely accuse anybody. And the bottom line is be content with what you have. This is the kind of fruit that John the Baptist is mentioning here. And it's about trusting God, being content with what you have and not mistreating other people and particularly not mistreating other people. Your position in society gives you some sort of power or ability to do that by abusing it. Okay, let me sum up everything I've said today. You ready? What's coming? The kingdom is coming and judgment is coming. They're both coming. Two things are coming according to this passage and because of that we need to be prepared. And how do we prepare? Well, you repent, you get baptised and then you go and bear fruit. So the question at the end of this passage that we've been looking at yesterday and today. And what I'm closing by asking is the same one I asked at the beginning. And the question is, are you prepared? If the king is really coming, if the kingdom is really coming, if judgment is really coming, then are you prepared? Suppose I was to tell you that Jesus is definitely coming back in your lifetime. Well, he is. What are you saying, you might think, no, when Jesus returns? No, but as far as we are concerned, living in this temporal life, Jesus is coming in our lifetimes because either he will return and break through into this life or we shall live out our natural days and die and then immediately we too will face him. So Jesus is coming in our lifetime. Are you prepared? Some are enjoying the journey, but they're not really preparing for the destination. They're not ready to land. 
In April of 1988, there was a piece written in the London Evening News about a skydiver who was also a photographer. He and some of his friends jumped out of a plane, and he went first, and there they were free-falling, and he was taking pictures with his cameras, catching great images of everyone as they followed him out of the plane one by one. At the last minute, he reached out for his ripcord and realised he hadn't even put his parachute on. They recovered the film, and they got some great shots. And he completed his journey, but he wasn't prepared for his landing. He wasn't prepared for his inevitable destination. In his case, he wasn't prepared because he hadn't put on his parachute, and in fact, he plunged to his death. I have one final piece of advice for you before we close off this section. Don't take another step. Don't jump unless you are prepared for what will definitely be your final destination. Okay, friends. Hope you find that helpful. As I said in the introduction, transcript of what I've said is always available in the episode notes the podcast. And there are also links there in ways in which you can connect to other aspects of my ministry, Facebook, YouTube, even LinkedIn. You will find there not just further teaching, but also more formal structured discipleship courses that I make available. Everything free, everything without copyright, all in the public domain for you to use personally or to use in the preparation of your teaching and preaching materials. I ask you to take them and use them with my blessing and I trust the blessing of God. But that's it for today. Thank you, thank you all so much for taking the time to join me today as we work through the Bible. It isn't wonderful, isn't it, to have to make the Bible part of the rhythm, the study of the Bible part of the rhythm of your daily life. And if you are benefiting from this, then I would request that maybe you consider sharing it with others. Perhaps you have social media accounts, perhaps do a like or a share or even a review so that this teaching and this ability to make the study of the Bible part of the daily life might reach out further into the corners of the internet that you happen to inhabit and that God will be blessed by the reading and the studying of his word. Anyway, that's it for today. I'll see you right back here tomorrow, I trust, on the Bible Project Daily Podcast. Bye-bye for now.